Hey there, listeners, and welcome back to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Adam Hassanin. This week is our season four finale of Briefly. Thanks so much for joining us throughout this wonderful season and helping us make the best production possible. If you've been a fan of the show for a while now, you've probably picked up on our podcast, Traditional Organization. Our hosts highlight an issue, speak with an expert on the subject, typically a professor, judge, or practitioner, and engage in a conversation. But this episode is unlike its predecessors, both in terms of structure and its content. This is an episode about armbands, bong hits, and cheerleading, about student elections and school newspapers. At its core, this is an episode on student speech rights and student expression. Throughout this two-episode miniseries, we'll be taking a journey down the Supreme Court's student speech jurisprudence. That is, what the court has said is and is not permissible for students to say in school. So far, the courts opine on four of these cases since the 1960s. But for the most part, instead of talking with professors or practitioners about these past cases, we'll be hearing from the very students who brought these cases into court in the first place. We'll hear all about their cases from the history, the facts, and the holding from their point of view. Even more, they'll talk to us about their experiences, reactions, and thoughts throughout the entire process from the moment that they plan their speech acts to the publication of the Supreme Court's opinion. Now, I've always been fascinated with the concept of student speech rights and thought that the issue would make for a really interesting podcast in its own right. However, the timing of this podcast is particularly relevant. Back in January, the Supreme Court decided to take on a new student speech case for this term, marking the fifth case it's ever heard on the issue. It's been called a threshold First Amendment question, bedeviling the nation's nearly 100,000 public schools. Can public schools punish students for speech outside school grounds? And it's an issue made even more urgent by the pandemic where more schooling is taking place online. Next month, the Supreme Court will decide whether to hear a case called Mahanoy Area School District versus BL. As that CNN clip goes on to mention, Brandy, or BL, as named in the case, was a minor attending Mahanoy Area High School. And as a freshman, Brandy was really interested in joining the school's cheerleading team. After trying out for the squad, she made junior varsity. Throughout the year, she had a successful time on the team and really enjoyed participating. So when she became a sophomore, she was eager to try out for the team once again, but hoped to make the varsity squad. Unfortunately, she only placed in the JV once again. As the Third Circuit noted, Brandy was quite frustrated with this. Not only had she missed out on varsity, but she'd also been unhappy with her position on a private softball team that she was in, and she was stressed out about upcoming school exams. So one Saturday on a shopping trip with a friend, Brandy vented her frustrations. She took a photo of herself and her friend with their middle fingers raised and posted it on social media, specifically on Snapchat, an application that allows people to add friends and exchange pictures and texts that disappear after so many seconds. Brandy posted the picture on her story, allowing anyone who she was friends with to see both the picture and the caption. Now, she captioned that photo, F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything, without the censorship, of course. She followed this up with a picture and another post saying, love how me and another student get told we need a year of JV before we make varsity, but that doesn't matter to anyone else. Brandy was, of course, referring to a freshman who had went straight to the varsity team this year. 
One of Brandy's friends on Snapchat took a screenshot of the image and showed it to the school's cheerleading coach. The coaches decided that Brandy's snap violated the team and school rules, which requires that participants avoid foul language, refrain from sharing negative information about the cheerleading team, and to respect their coaches in the school generally. Brandy was removed from the team as a result, and her parents then took action. They sued in federal court. Eventually, the case made its way to the Third Circuit, where they ruled for Brandy, holding that the First Amendment does not allow public schools to punish students for speech conducted off school grounds. The school appealed to the Supreme Court, who agreed to take that case. Now, you might be asking yourself a whole bunch of different questions. What rights do students have to speak in school? What can't they say? What gives the school the right to remove Brandy from the team? How do the school craft those specific rules? And how do courts even evaluate student speech cases in the first place? All of these questions and more will be addressed throughout the next two episodes. The Supreme Court will be hearing Brandy's case soon. And by soon, I mean today, April 28th, 2021. So please join us in our season finale of Briefly, covering all that you could ever want to know about student speech. The first case that addressed student speech rights was Tinker v. Des Moines Independent Community School District back in 1969. In that case, a group of students in Des Moines were frustrated and upset with the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War and wanted to stage a protest at school by wearing black armbands. The school district, having been alerted to this action, preemptively banned the use of black armbands. When students came to school in the coming days wearing these armbands, they were summarily suspended. The students eventually sued in federal court, and that case reached the Supreme Court, which held in favor of the students. In a well-recounted line, Justice Abe Fortas noted that students don't shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate, and that unless the speech caused a material and substantial disruption or impinges on the rights of other students, then a student's speech is protected. John and Mary Beth Tinker, some of the plaintiffs in the case, now provide us with their account. I'm John Tinker. I'm known as one of the petitioners in Tinker v. Des Moines, a free speech case from 1969. I'm Mary Beth Tinker, and I'm one of the plaintiffs also in the Supreme Court case Tinker v. Des Moines. There were three plaintiffs. The other one was a friend of ours named Chris Eckhart. Can you talk us through what was happening in Des Moines in December of 1965? What was the atmosphere like? The war was... uh, an increasing concern for a number of Iowans, for a number of people in Des Moines. And this included both adults and college students and public school students. So we were part of a group of people who were concerned about the war. We considered ourselves to be uh, anti-war activists, and we were trying to raise consciousness of the war. This was back at the end of 1965, and the war was becoming increasingly violent. And so the anti-war forces were um, becoming increasingly active, and we were part of that group. Really, it was a time of much activity. And uh, one student recently called it mighty times, which it really was a lot like now. And we had been inspired also partly by other youth that were speaking up mostly against racism. Students even in Virginia in 1955 and students in 
you know, sit-down strikes, the, the restaurant sit-down strikes during 1961, the Freedom Rides, and then the Birmingham Children in 1963, when four little girls, Cynthia, Addie Mae, Carol, and Denise, were murdered in the 16th Street Baptist Church as part of the Birmingham Children's Crusade. So that was really our first ex uh, experience with black armbands because we had a memorial service that was called for by James Baldwin to mourn the little girls in 1963. So it was very much uh, tied up with racial justice efforts also that many youth were involved with as well. So were those racial justice initiatives the things that inspired you all to use black armbands to protest the Vietnam War at your school? Yeah, the, the, um, the black armbands did come from the civil rights movement. When the civil rights workers were killed during Freedom Summer uh, of 64, we wore black armbands, uh, as Mary Beth pointed out, when the, the little girls were killed in the Birmingham church bombing. We also had a protest and we wore black armbands. And that was a traditional symbol of mourning. It used to be better known than it is these days, but to wear a black armband when uh, one of your relatives or somebody you care about died used to be a normal a normal thing in our society. And, and we more or less resurrected that, or the, I'd say the civil rights movement resurrected that idea. The anti-war movement then adopted that armband when the Vietnam War started to uh, become more of a war and the protests were looking for a symbol to uh, show the uh, opposition to the war, the armband, it was very natural for us to pick it up. What was going through your minds when you heard that the school preemptively banned black armbands just before your protest? Well, we learned about it really just two days before we were going, we were planning to do our protest. We were part of a high school group. It was actually based at the Unitarian Church. It was a Unitarian youth group. And our youth group had decided pretty much as a whole that we would wear the armbands. One of our members was a student journalist at Roosevelt High School in Des Moines, and he wrote an article for the school paper explaining what we were going to do and, and why we were doing it. And he presented it to the faculty advisor. And the faculty advisor, I guess, was shocked by that there was going to be a protest in the schools, uh, just the wearing of the black armbands. But uh, the advisor got on the phone to the principal of that high school, and that principal called the other principals in Des Moines. They had a meeting. They decided not to permit the wearing of black armbands. And then they conveyed that information to the newspaper, and we were informed of the prohibition by the newspaper article. We were then in a situation of knowing that there was going to be a problem if we wore the armbands. That morning, that morning that we were planning to wear the armbands, I had second thoughts about whether we should do this without having a meeting first. And so I got on the phone and tried to get people to hold off on the wearing of the armbands until we could have a meeting and make some kind of collective decision of how to deal with it. But Mary Beth, unfortunately, had already left for school. And Chris, when I got a hold of Chris Eckhart, he said, I don't care, I'm wearing it anyway. And so Mary Beth and Chris got uh, suspended from school that day. And we had a meeting at Chris's house that afternoon. We tried to contact the school board president. 
he basically told us that he didn't want to talk to us about it. And so we didn't know what to do. We decided to go ahead and, and wear the armbands anyway. Out of a school district of around 18,000 students, there had been 50 that were signed up to wear the armbands in this campaign that was really headed up by some students at Roosevelt High School, especially Bruce Clark, Ross Peterson, and a few others. But then when the principals made this rule against armbands, a lot of students decided not to do it. So in the end, there were less than 10 students suspended. But it was really a moral dilemma because we weren't really raised to break the rules. Our dad was a Methodist minister. And by this time, we were also all involved with the Quakers as well. But we had these examples, our parents, and then these kids in the civil rights movement who spoke up and stood up about things. So I put on my armband. I went off to school. I was really nervous and scared. I was the shyest kid you could imagine. I was only in eighth grade. And then I think my friend said, you better take off that armband. But I explained about the war and how I was sad. I mean, it's really a case also about kids finding ways to express their feelings. We had a lot of feelings about the war. Uh, I didn't know a lot about it, but the older kids like Bruce and Ross, I've heard Bruce speak. And he said, yeah, he actually did know quite a bit about the war by then. And I'm sure John knew more than I did too. But I just knew I was really sad about the war. And so I decided to go ahead and wear the armband. And then I got sent to the office by my math teacher, Mr. Moberly. And I was getting more and more nervous. And when I got down to the office, the vice principal, Mr. Willitson, said, now take off that armband, Mary Beth, that's against the rule. So I looked around. I was nervous and scared. So I took off the armband. And that's kind of the funny thing about it, because I got suspended anyway. And as I always tell the kids, I learned a very important lesson that day, though. You don't have to be the bravest person in the world. You can just be you. You can be a scared kid. And, you know, you can still find something, some way to speak up about the things you care about. Yeah, we we were not raised to be uh, kind of in-your-face rebels. We were raised to respect the rights of other people, to treat people decently and with a certain degree of respect. So the the armband protest was not an in-your-face we were not trying to make a disruption. Uh, we were trying to act respectfully. And in fact, the day I, I left, the next day after Mary Beth was suspended, I went to school and dad, he knew that I was planning to wear the armband. And on the way out the door, he said, you know, John, I'm not so sure you should wear that armband. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, the school authorities, they have a, they have a job to do. And they've considered it, and they've decided not to permit the the wearing of the armbands. And I'm just not so sure you should violate their rule. And I said, well, Dad, this is this is just a black piece of cloth, and in Vietnam, people are dying every day. And he said, well, then then for you, it's a matter of conscience. And and I said, well, I guess it is. And he said, well, then I support you. That seems like a great source of inspiration. I can't envision a better channeling of sentiment than that. Was there any sense of how your classmates might react to seeing the black armband in the protest? I'd read that students in Des Moines had gone to Vietnam and at least one had passed away. So I was wondering if you thought the protest might spark some agitation. My friends mostly ignored 
me and ignored the whole thing. Some warned me not to wear the armband, but the older kids at the high schools got more pushback from students, right, John? Uh, right. Um, and actually, I think the students at Roosevelt High School got more pushback than, than I did at North. I don't really remember a horrible reaction from my fellow students. Uh, once in a swimming pool, a guy dunked me, but it was it was not that scary actually. And but generally speaking, the students at my school didn't react negatively. I had some negative reaction at the uh, lunch room the day I wore the armband. Some kids came over to the lunch table where I was with my friends, my traditional regular friends. And, and some of them were concerned, you know, that I was going to be kicked out of school. Some of them disagreed with me about the war, but I think all of them thought I should be, I should have the right to wear the armband. Anyway, some kids came over from another table and they began to harass me. They called me a coward and a commie and things like that. Those were insults that were thrown at anti-war activists back then. Well, while that was happening, one of our football players from the high school saw this going on, that the two kids were harassing me. So he walked over to the table and he said to them, he said, look, you've got your opinion about the war in Vietnam. And John has his opinion about the war in Vietnam. And John has a right to his opinion, so leave him alone. And so <laughs> that was pretty nice, you know, from my point of view. But it just shows you that the kids were not all against us. Some of them really recognized that there was a free speech issue there and that we were exercising our free speech rights. And and so some of the kids really had a strong sense of the rightness of the First Amendment and the the that we should have the right to express our opinion. Our message was to support a Christmas truce that was being proposed by Senator Robert Kennedy and also to mourn for the dead in Vietnam on both sides of the war. And that's one thing that made it so controversial. When we went back to school, we both wore all black clothing. And I, I continue that for the rest of the semester. But I had a teacher who every year that was I was in 10th grade. So I had three more years of high school. And every year, the social studies teacher would invite me to come to talk to his class about the Vietnam War. And so it just was not all negative. There were positive things that came out of it at the school. Mary Beth, you spoke a little bit about your experience and your confrontation in terms of getting suspended. John, what was your suspension like? The day I was kicked out, I'll, I'll just tell a little about that. I, I was called into the principal's office and the principal you know, sat me down and we had a discussion. And he was trying to persuade me to take off the armband. And he was treating me with a certain degree of respect. I mean, he was trying to convince me, not order me. And we talked for a long time. I was trying to convince him that the Vietnam War was wrong. He, he said, well, maybe you don't understand the importance of supporting your government in time of war you know, which is kind of an, a patronizing thing to say, but 
he was trying to protect me. He was saying, this is going to complicate your application to any university or college after graduation. He he basically took the attitude of he wanted me to take it off for my own good. And at the end, you know, and this is a long conversation for a principal during a school day to take with one student, you know. And at the end of that conversation, he says, well, John, I'm going to ask you to take off the armband. And if you do, you go back to class, it'll be just like nothing happened at all. He said, but I don't think you're going to take it off, are you? (laughs) And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, then I'm going to have to send you home. So I called my dad, got a ride. But on the way out, he said, uh, the principal said to me, he said, so I suppose now you're going to call the newspaper and tell them all about this. And I said, well, I'm just pointing out that it was the school board that contacted the newspaper in the first place. And he looked at me and he said, well, I guess you're right about that. So, I mean, there was a degree of respect between the principal and myself. And also earlier that day, before I got kicked out, I'd gone to my mathematics class, quite different from Mary Beth's mathematics class. And I'm almost certain that the teacher saw my armband and just decided not to not to do anything about it. And, and to, to assume that the uh, teachers were all in line with what the principals were doing, I don't think that's fair to the teachers. I think a, a fair number of them didn't see what was the problem with having a student wearing a black armband because students were we, they wore. We wore uh, political campaign buttons all the time. Every every election, there would be students with campaign buttons and so on. So. so we've talked a lot about the day of the protest and the events leading up to it, which has been really helpful because the court's majority opinion is scant on some of these details. The court did highlight, however, and you all touched on, that the protest caused some harsh remarks, but no real violence from within the classroom or the school. Well, what about outside of the school? Did you all experience some sort of pushback from the Des Moines community? I did not experience any uh, physical attacks myself. I know that some of the students from Roosevelt High School did when they were at a, not at school, but at the shopping center, they were roughed up. I have a friend who was hurt. He He was kicked in the groin and he said that I, I talked to him a, a year ago by the telephone, and he said that that still is a problem for him. It's not that there wasn't any violence. There really was. There wasn't any in the school, but the anti-war protesters, they kind of got used to receiving insults and, and so on. But as I said, I personally wasn't, wasn't hurt. Our, our car, the windshield was broken on our car, and somebody threw paint near our house or at our house or? Well, people would love to call us communists. And my mom would always say, we're not communists, we're Methodists. And people would throw red paint at us, they call us communists. And someone called me on the phone and said, is this Mary Beth? And I said, yes. And she said, I'm going to kill you. So, I mean, really the bullying and threats that we got were not from students as much as from adults, I have to say. In Des Moines, but we came to also compare all of this to what was going on with the black students in the civil rights movement. I mean, who were being beaten right and left and 
killed some of them. And I mean, by this time, the Freedom Riders had had their bus blown up, you know, burned up um, and ended up in the hospital. So, so in the end, we kind of compared it to that and it, it didn't seem that bad. That makes a lot of sense. When you put in that context of what's happening across the country, it really shows the gravity of the situation. It's hard for someone like me being 25 to really understand the climate in the country and the violence that was happening in the South. I'm limited only to reading about it or hearing about it in lecture, but hearing your thought process and how you were thinking about the issue in comparison to those students really helps understand the distinction between the two. But this is also a pretty good segue away from the days surrounding the protest to the lawsuits itself. So you appeal from the school board, and eventually, three years later, you end up in front of the Supreme Court. How closely were you all following the case as it moved through the district court to the circuit and eventually to the Supreme Court? And by the time that that ruling came down, was it still a big part of your life? How do you think back on that period? I mean, we were going on about our lives, you know, studying for our classes. I was going roller skating on the weekends, et cetera. John was taking violin, let what. But let me just mention that in 1964, before we were suspended, in Mississippi, some high school students had worn buttons to school to protest the Klan murders of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman, and they had been suspended. And so a case was working its way through the courts at the same time. That case was called Burnside, and it would eventually set the standard for free speech because it would be cited then eventually in the ruling in our case. But we didn't know about that case, but our lawyer did because our lawyer was wonderful, a young man named Dan Johnston. And he was an American Civil Liberties Union and they had offered to take the case. So these two cases ended up going through the courts um, simultaneously. Yeah, I saw that. They just lifted the standard from Burnside. I found that really interesting because the court was just adopting a standard from the Fifth Circuit in a case that they'd never heard and on an issue that they never addressed. The Supreme Court never really gave any justification for the standard either, that schools can punish when there's a material substantial disruption. They just sort of went with it. I know it really is because I like to tell students that really that standard that you cannot, you can have free speech in schools, but you cannot substantially disrupt school with your free speech. That comes directly from the Black students in Mississippi who spoke up against the white supremacists and, and the murders of those three civil rights workers. But then, uh, so, so we lost at the district level. We gave depositions and we did go to trial there and take a stand. And then it was appealed to the appeals court in 1966. It was heard at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals for Iowa. Well, not too long before then, just before then, the Fifth Circuit ruled in favor of the Burnside students. So that's where you had the circuit split. And that's where the American Civil Liberties Union appealed ours then to the Supreme Court. And were you satisfied with the court's ruling and the new standard? I mean, when we finally won at the Supreme Court on February 24th, 1969, which is the same date as Marbury versus Madison, not the same year, when we won by seven to two, John was in college. I was in high school in a new city in St. Louis, but it was hard to be real happy about it because it was one of the worst years for the Vietnam War and thousands of troops and thousands and thousands of Vietnamese were being hurt and injured. It was really a war of atrocity, it's known as. 
So when we finally won, the Supreme Court, Abe Fortas, writing the opinion, cited then the Burnside case in his opinion, saying basically, well, there were a lot of reasons why we should win. Also, viewpoint discrimination helped us win because the school board, the school had allowed black armbands for students mourning the death of school spirit, but they wouldn't allow us to talk about Vietnam. So that's why it's really a student's rights issue because the administration shouldn't have you know, be the ones to decide what students talk about and discuss. Students should have a right to talk about the issues that affect their lives. So when Abe Fortas wrote the famous decision that neither students or teachers leave their constitutional right to expression at the schoolhouse gate, they cited the Burnside case then in in their exceptions that just like the Burnside students still cannot substantially disrupt school And number two, the other exception was you cannot impinge on the rights of others with your free speech, whatever that means. And that's been debated ever since, and it still is being debated today. I want to add that it's important to bear in mind that for us, we were primarily interested in opposing the war and bringing awareness about the war. And now, of course, our case is a free speech case and celebrated as a free speech case. But our real motivation was as anti-war protesters. And so in 1969, when we won in February, the war still continued for, for years after that. So we didn't have the sense that we had really accomplished our mission, in a sense. It was a, a partial win on, on one of the issues. I'll just mention that Our friend Bruce Clark, who with Ross Peterson was one of the primary organizers of the black armband wearing among the students, Bruce did not participate in our case. And it was, I thought for a long time, I thought that the reason he didn't participate was because uh, he was worried about his father's employment. But I mentioned this to him maybe 10 years ago when I saw him and he said, no, no, it was that. Uh, I didn't want to be part of a First Amendment case. I thought that that was going to distract from the opposition to the war, to switch this over into a First Amendment case. So we won the First Amendment case, but the war continued. So it was a, a mitigated accomplishment. The victory wasn't total. It wasn't until 1986, 17 years after Tinker, that the Supreme Court would hear another student speech case. The Tinker Standard became common application for the lower courts, but on cert review, the facts surrounding Bethel School District versus Fraser sparked interest with the Supreme Court. The case revolved around Matthew Fraser, a high school senior in Washington State that gave an endorsement speech for a candidate running for student vice president. Matt's speech, although short, contained several sexual innuendos, and although Matt's speech did not cause a clear disruption in any classroom activities, He was suspended by school administrators. The Ninth Circuit ruled in his favor, but the Supreme Court reversed and created an exception to the Tinker Standard, holding that the First Amendment permits schools to punish students for lewd and indecent speech. But let's hear more about the case from Matt himself. I'm Matt Fraser. I am known for a Supreme Court case called Bethel versus Fraser. I was 17 years old and gave a speech with some sexual innuendo in it. 
It went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was the first case after Tinker to address these issues, and the Supreme Court created an exception um, for what they called juvenile obscenity. You know, I've been a school teacher for 30 years. I run a company called Education Unlimited, which does summer programs for kids and teens and live out here in California. Can you walk us through the events of 1983 a bit closer? What was happening on school grounds that led to your speech and your suspension? So it was April 26th of 1983. It was my senior year of high school. A kid named Jeff Coleman came to me and just asked, you know, could you step in as my campaign manager? Because my regular campaign manager, a guy named Matt Taylor, who was actually my high school debate partner, which is how I also knew Jeff Coleman. He was on the team. Matt Taylor was not allowed by the school to present for Jeff Coleman because he was running the assembly. So they decided at the last minute that that wouldn't be fair. And Jeff Coleman had to find someone else to speak on his behalf. So he approached me just one hour before the assembly. I wrote a little speech that's, uh, you know, five or six sentences long, had a lot of sexual innuendo in it. The assembly happened, students laughed and cheered, hooted and hollered, stamped on the bleachers, but nobody broke any windows. There wasn't disruption in the classic sense. And so they suspended me from school is the long and short of it. I got an attorney provided by the American Civil Liberties Union of Seattle, uh, Jeff Haley. And the attorney tried to negotiate with the school. I was suspended for three days. For the first two days, they wouldn't let me back in. We did go through the school process, but the attorney was anxious to short circuit that. He basically insisted on a ruling from the superintendent and then a ruling from the school board within the week or we were going to sue in federal court. So they did that. And uh, the superintendent held against me. Gerald Hossman, I think his name was. And then the the school board, I think, I think I picked up one vote and think there was one school board member who was abstained. So I think I lost three to one to one. So it's my understanding, once you lost the appeal through the school channels, you went through the federal system. What was your experience like there? The federal judge voted for me and issued his decision the day before my graduation granted me $278 in damages and also granted me the right to speak at graduation because I had won a spot based on a write-in vote of the students. So I went off to college. They appealed. It went to the Circuit Court of Appeals. I actually had a college debate tournament that weekend, so I didn't go. And my attorney thought, you know, there was, he said, most of this is decided on the briefs and whatever reasoning they want to bring to it. He said, it probably won't last that long and it's really not worth your going unless, you know, unless you're around and want to go. So I decided to go do my college debate tournament. I won that on a two to one decision, losing only Justice Wright, who was of course wrong. And uh, then it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, they obviously go through this process of certiorari that not everyone understands. The U.S. Supreme Court does not hear most cases that get appealed to it. In fact, there's typically 20 to 30,000 cases appealed, and they usually only hear 100 to 150 cases in a term. There's a few cases that are laid out in the U.S. Constitution that they have to hear. But beyond that, the vast majority, it takes the justices to decide to hear the case. So they seem to only hear one of these student rights cases about every 15 or 20 years. There was 1969 Tinker versus Des Moines, 1986 
Bethel v. Fraser, you know, 17 years later, Morse v. Frederick in the early 2000s. I, th- I think that was about 2005 or six. And now this case in, you know, roughly 15 years later. So it's really been like clockwork every 15 to 18 years that they've heard another case sort of readdressing the issues raised in Tinker. And as you mentioned, your case was the first student speech rights matter to make it to the Supreme Court since Tinker. Were you aware of the Tinker case when you were going through high school or thinking about this speech or even when you were initially punished? I was not. I was a pretty well-informed kid. I was on the debate team, top speaker in the state two years in a row, lots of, you know, research on various subjects and debated education. But you know, I probably heard it mentioned my junior year when I was at camp and whatnot and read it in passing. But I vaguely knew that students had some kind of free speech rights, but I really didn't know what they were. So this case was a phenomenal education for me. And in fact, I've heard from kids and teachers all over the country every year. This case is apparently taught in schools throughout the country which is kind of funny, and your listeners should bear in mind as they think about the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled this was juvenile obscenity, and I could be punished for giving this speech, and yet teachers break this out in their history class, and students read the speech. You can go on YouTube, and there's like hundreds of reenactments of my speech from kids who are doing it as class projects, and they turn it in at school as class projects, Everybody watches the video and laughs and claps, and that's fun. And yet the original speech was punishable. I've always found that very ironic. That sounds really incredibly ironic because you mentioned it's not like they're just learning about the history of the case. They're reacting and reenacting the case in your speech specifically, contrary to the court's opinion about the speech's value. Yeah. My question is, how can a teacher teach this? and not be in trouble for teaching juvenile obscenity. If it's bad enough that it's labeled by the U.S. Supreme Court juvenile obscenity, how can students be studying this? And they were doing that even during the court case. You know, I was getting contacted by various teachers and students. You know, school papers were reporting on it and reprinted the speech. They reprinted the speech in my school paper. I That was something I kind of forgot about, and I was rereading some old memorabilia a few weeks ago, and it really should have been a point raised to the U.S. Supreme Court because the last edition of the school newspaper reprinted my speech. How is it that the very school, you know, for the students who hadn't heard it, if it's juvenile obscenity, how can you be printing juvenile obscenity just because people are talking about it? It really, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's almost like cherry-picked understanding of what obscenity is. It's as if the school is asking itself, well, what do we want to consider obscenity? Is it a Monday or a Tuesday? That wishy-washy understanding of obscenity provides no notice to future students. Yeah, and it's worse because it was my actual speech. The school reprinted my actual speech. Teachers at high school were talking about the wording of my speech and reading it out loud in class. So it's okay to do it in 
in class, but it's not okay to do it in a political assembly where you think students would have the greatest level of protection. That's another thing that people forget when they're thinking about my court case, is that if you're going to have an hour or two of freedom for students to speak their mind the entire year, you would think it's at a political assembly to elect political officers at the school. And schools also have the opportunity to insist on prior review. They could have said they wanted to see my speech and decide whether there was a problem with it, but they weren't worried about it. So it creates this moving target for kids where they don't really know whether it's going to be okay or not. In fact, I showed it to the newspaper teacher. I showed it to a history teacher and I showed it to my debate coach. And I got varying degrees of response, but none of them said this is against school rules. You know, this is an obscene speech and you can get in trouble for this. The worst any of them said was that it would raise some eyebrows, the history teacher said, and uh, she thought it was perhaps inappropriate was what the school journalism teacher said. You would think that if it was blatantly prohibited or impermissible, those people would have said something to you. And the fact that you sought their advice is really telling. I want to take it back a little bit to your meeting with the school's assistant principal when she instituted the punishment. She said that the speech violated the school rules, but did you have any knowledge about what those rules were or that you were violating them? That night when I went home, I called the ACLU in Seattle. You know, they encouraged me to break out your student handbook, which I happened to have a copy of. And, uh, you know, it was basically said the Tinker case. It said if you materially and substantially disrupt the educational process, you could be punished for speech. So that was the only rule that the school had on the books at the time. And the U.S. Supreme Court, in my case, didn't even rule on that. You know, the school, the best argument they could make was such a reach. It was sort of laughed out of court by the federal judge. A home economics teacher said that she had students talk about the speech for 10 minutes during her first two periods of class. So therefore, my speech disrupted her class, to which my attorney had one question. He's like, now, who is that that's in control of your class and sets the agenda for what you talk about? Would that be you or the students? And she got all indignant and said, oh, well, obviously, I decide who's going to speak in my class. And he said, thank you. That's my only question. (laughs) And they didn't, you know, the federal judge denied that. Even the U.S. Supreme Court did not say in any way the speech was disruptive. They had to create a whole new exception to Tinker for this thing of juvenile obscenity. But of course, they never talked about the fact that this case is taught in school. Students reenact the speech. They say it out loud. It was printed in the school newspaper. Uh, Teachers at that very school are talking about this speech and teaching it. So how can, you know, it would be like telling kids, well, we read Shakespeare in class, but if you read it out loud in the lunchroom, you're in big trouble because Shakespeare is some dirty stuff. That's really effectively what happened here. And it's it's a very questionable, troubling decision because it says that it is obscenity when the school says it is. And the exact, not even something similar, but the exact same thing is totally fine when the school says it is. It just gives them, it's more than wide latitude. What what the courts have been moving towards is wide latitude for schools. And I think it's more absolute latitude. The U.S. Supreme Court is moving in the direction that 
school officials can decide when, where, and how they wish to punish speech, and they are the ultimate arbiters. I think the court is about to move in the direction of removing themselves from these decisions. What was your reaction to this case going to the Supreme Court and your reaction to the court's holding? I mean, I had been prepared by my attorney. He explained the certiorari process that it's very rare. They seldom take a case about student rights and free speech and high school students. And, you know, around the time of my case, they also took TLO versus New Jersey was a locker searches case. I think that was ended up being one year before, um, but we wouldn't have known the outcome of that, you know, or maybe we did right around that time. It was surprising that they took it because I had been told they're very unlikely to take it. And I did learn, as I mentioned to you when we were talking just before the show, Stephen Schifrin is a great renowned scholar who writes the First Amendment case law textbook used by most of the law schools in the country. I debated with Shauna Schifrin, who's now a famous, you know, attorney and teacher, legal scholar and professor at UCLA and philosophy professor. She was my college debate partner. So I was able to hear his opinion, Lawrence Tribe's opinion through her. And she told me at the time that they thought it was a bad sign that they were accepting this case because I'd already won in the circuit court two to one. So the thinking is that you don't generally have justices vote for a case from the side that won. So the liberals were not voting for it. It was, you know, the so-called conservatives on the court. So that was surprising that they took it. I should have not been surprised to lose. I didn't really know. You know, I thought our argument was just so strong. I thought it was ridiculous that these contradictions that I've pointed out, that the school will teach it and put it in the newspaper and, you know, something I haven't thought about for 25 years, but at the time I was cognizant of, that that's all okay, that Shakespeare in the classroom is okay. And yet somehow this speech is not okay, you know, when it's okay for kids to retell jokes from The Tonight Show the night before that had equally strong or stronger innuendo in it. I was surprised. It was, for me, not that consequential personally. I was out of school. I got to speak at graduation. It's more the impact on other students that worries me and the future and what the trend meant. The trajectory of student speech cases has really shifted since Tinker, both in your case and then later in Morris, as we'll cover in the podcast. But how do you feel about your case and the rule that was developed sort of shaping and impacting students today and even being brought up in the Mahoney case? Well, I, I think that, you know, the meta trends of who's appointed to the Supreme Court, what the politics are, Merrick Garland not being confirmed to the court. I mean, I'm not, I don't lose any sleep at night feeling that I'm responsible for the conservative court in America. Um, I know that's not what you're saying, but people often ask me like, well, what, how does that weigh on you? No, my case doesn't weigh on me because I'm not the U.S. Supreme Court. All I can do is, you know, bring my case and have it heard and hope for justice. This thinking is sort of blaming the victim. You know, I lost my case. I was cheated and robbed. I should have got my $278, you know, in damages for the two days of school that I missed and got my attorney's fees paid and been vindicated. So that's why I look at like the new case coming up and I'm like, you know what? I think 
Morse v. Frederick and Bethel v. Fraser are not the cause of the trend. They're simply symptomatic of what's happening in the court. Shortly after Fraser, the court opined on its next student speech case in 1988. A little different from the previous two matters, this case, Hazelwood School District versus Kohlmeyer, revolved around a publication of a student newspaper. One afternoon, the editors of the Hazelwood School paper, The Spectrum, submitted a draft of the paper's upcoming issue to the school's journalism teacher and the principal, just as normal. When the editors received the final prints of the new edition, however, they found that three of their articles had been removed. The principal had objected to the articles and removed them without alerting the editors. A group of the paper's editors then sued, and the case made its way to the Supreme Court. The court held that because the student newspaper was a school-sponsored publication associated with the school's curriculum and could be reasonably seen as being associated with the school itself, school officials could impose reasonable restrictions, like censorship of some articles, on the publication. Kathy Kohlmeyer talks about her experience here in detail. So I understand that the student publication at your school was tied to your journalism classes and that you were taking journalism too at this time and you were an editor in the paper. Could you walk us through some of the responsibilities both as an editor of the spectrum and throughout the class? What were some of the subjects you all would cover in the paper? Well, let me back up to actually J1. In J1, we'd learned about what it was like to be on staff and kind of what the response and and that type of thing. One of the things we talked about, we had an incredible teacher named Mr. Sturgis, and he taught us about the Tinker Standard. And little did we know how important that was going to become to us um, in a very short amount of time and how students did not shed their rights at the schoolhouse gate. And that just really stood out to me. And like I said, little did I know how important it would really ultimately become. And another thing we learned about in J1 was prior restraint. The translation to it in a 17-year-old mind through all past the legalese was you can't censor that, you know, we did have some kind of rights to that. But in J2, we've we've now become the staff and we wanted to do something a little more intense in our paper because typically the school paper had been pretty fluffy and they did the pretty stories about who was the prom king and queen and how the football team was doing and, and those type of things, what was going on in the theater group. And we had identified some issues in our in our school and we just wanted to talk about something more relevant. And we went back to the morgue of stories where it's the past editions, story ideas, pictures, things like that. And we came across something that had been previously published edition of the Spectrum several years back underneath the different principal, Dr. Negri. And it was about the problems of teenagers. And we thought that's pretty relevant. They're, you know, we're teenagers, we have problems. We identified it to be a pregnancy problem in the high school to the point that we had a daycare in the school. We have a student body of about 2,500 students. And in a given time, there are about 30, 40 ladies that were pregnant in the school. So we thought, okay, well, you know, this was the same topics and they published um, underneath Dr. Negri. And, you know, why not just update it, put a new spin on it, kind of update the stories to it. So we basically followed the same principles as what they had done. Um, we chose to interview three different girls in high school that were pregnant. They all had a different story and each one spin was different. And the reason that we chose that was because one was all sunshine and rainbows. This is the best experience I've ever had. I can't, I'm excited to have a baby. One was, okay, I'm pregnant and I have to deal with it. And the third was like, oh my God, this is like the worst thing ever that could have possibly happened. And we gave those different accounts because we wanted to show all sides of it and not just be, yes, get pregnant, that kind of thing. We weren't out to promote pregnancy by any means. It was just giving them a, a kind of full view of what could potentially be 
And so trying to be good journalists because Sturge was a great teacher. He taught us to verify your sources and, and the accuracy of reporting and those type of things. So once we had finished writing all the stories, we gave it back to the girls and we said, would you review this? If everything is accurate, would you sign it or initial it for us? And because you're minors, so take it home to your parents and ask your parents to approve it if it's okay with what you're saying in there, because we don't want any surprises to come of it. So we had all the, you know, the accuracy of everything was legit as well as consent on it. Then we also took it one step further too, to ask them to talk about changing the names of everything. And there was a blurb inserted to the beginning of the articles that said, these are not the actual names, kind of like, you know, when they talk about Law and Order, the TV show, and they say to protect the innocent kind of thing, the names have been changed. That's what we did. I mean, it wasn't protecting the innocent, you know, because they hadn't done anything wrong. But you know where I'm going with it, that we wanted to keep their identities a secret so that there wasn't any, you know, anyone being called out and, and drawing any unnecessary attention to them. So it was all good with that. We also did talk to the guys if they chose to for the dads involved on it. Same thing. If it's accurate, sign it. Have your parents sign it as well. And then in the divorce story, we talked about reasons for parents' divorce. And my father was one of them that was quoted in there. And again, the names had been removed from everything. But we talked with him because he was an alcoholic when I was in high school, a bad alcoholic. And it was hard. And I felt very isolated being in that situation. My dad was so bad one day he came home drunk and the subdivision we lived in had a divided center median, you know, one way in, one way out. He crossed over the center median and inserted his car into my soccer coach's house and was just that lit. And so, you know, don't you know, when I go back to school the next day, people are pointing fingers at me and talking and doing the whisper and stuff behind my back. And it was hard to face that, you know, people are talking about me. I didn't do that. My dad did that. It's not, you know, representative of who I am by any means, but that all hurt. And again, we wanted to let kids know you're not the only one walking in that path. But my dad also had the opportunity to comment back on it. And he said, yeah, you know, fact of the matter is I I am a drunk. I have a drinking problem. I was eight and nine years old and driving him home from the bar. It was so bad. But we wanted kids to know you're you're not the only one that's experiencing these kind of problems. And the story that I that bothers me the most that didn't run was about runaways. And in the runaway story, it talked about different potential reasons kid would run away. You had a fight with your family. You can't get along with your siblings or, you know, you didn't get something that you wanted. So you're mad and you're going to run away. During the time in high school, I worked at Target and there was a guy named Reggie Jones and Reggie was going to run away. And I don't know the background of why he chose to, but he stopped in Target that day and um, he took his life in the bathroom at Target. And that was very devastating to me to find out, find someone that I knew had taken that kind of measure because he was in so much pain. But the reason that I say I struggle with that one so much is because in that story, there were hotline numbers. And I would like to think that maybe Reggie had been given the opportunity, had the articles run, maybe Reggie would have read that story and hopefully had made a phone call stating that, you know, telling him, talking to somebody for help, that maybe he'd still be here today. So that part's pretty hard to accept. These all seem like incredibly important and positive news stories that high schoolers or teenagers should be informed about. What ended up happening? None of it happened. We were under the impression the articles were all good. During that point in time, Sturgis left. Riser had kind of bad blood between him and Mr. Reynolds, the principal, and he resigned and left. They brought in a substitute teacher by the name of Miss Adams. She was not a journalism teacher, had no background in it, so she wasn't any useful help to us during the class periods. They brought in another advisor, Mr. Emerson, from our rival high school, Hazelwood Central, and he could at least guide us through stuff when we needed help on things. But it was his practice prior to the publication of the paper that he would take it down to the principal for prior review. Now, we had just learned about that wasn't okay. And so we're 
the paper goes down to Emerson, or Reynolds and Emerson, meet and talk about it on Friday. It's due to come back. It's printed over the weekend, due to come back on Monday. Um, and we're back in class. It's minus the center spread. And we're all kind of questioning going, what happened to it? Emerson wasn't around. So we went down and talked to Mr. Reynolds and he said, um, well, those articles were trash. So I'm not going to publish those. And we were questioning of why, what is wrong with it? And he said, well, it's too mature for an immature audience. And I said, but if you're old enough to get pregnant, shouldn't you be old enough to read about it? We're not telling you how to and, you know, saying go do. It was, if you're in this situation, maybe here's some other options you can choose. Here's just the accounts of these students. Hopefully, I mean, turn them away from teen pregnancy because it's got to be hard. And he said, well, I can identify everybody in the stories. And I said, well, great. If you Google the images, put in Hazelwood v. Kuhlmeyer and you'll see the image come up of the actual layout. And there's a ghosting image of a pregnant girl in it. And within that, I said, who is that girl? And he named somebody. I said, no. I said, that's me. I wasn't pregnant until 1994. So I was quite a ways out from ever being pregnant. But through Immaculate Conception, I told him, I said, you too can be pregnant, Mr. Reynolds. I said, because all I did was take my sweater and I rolled it up and I stuck it underneath another sweater and voila, I was pregnant. And so he didn't like that. But it was just showing him the credibility of, you know, you don't know everything. So he told us, well, if you don't sell this edition of the paper, there's not going to be another edition to come. And and the next edition to come out was the senior senior edition. And that meant a lot, to, obviously, to the seniors because, you know, they want their name in lights kind of thing. So we went back upstairs and we took a vote. And we the juniors of the class lost the vote because, you know, there were more seniors in the class. So the seniors went downstairs and sold the paper. And I snuck out of class. It was my one big brave moment. And I snuck out of class because Miss Adams was too busy trying to put on her lipstick. And I called Mr. Sturgis and I said, so Sturge, I said, we just got censored. I said, what do you think we should do about it? I said, I, you know, we really want the articles to run. You know, you know, the quality of what we did. And he said, yeah. He said, there's no reason that they shouldn't. And he said, well, I would advise you to call the ACLU. Now being 17 in high school, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know who they were, but because I believed in him, I went back to the class and I said, okay, well, here's what Sturge said. He said, call the ACLU and see what they can do for us. So we went home, talked to parents that night. If we had parental support, then we got together as a group because we had the blessing of the parents. We contacted the ACLU and they said, we would very much like to talk to you. And they said that they very much believed in what we had done and they would like to represent us. And what were the reactions of the local community and the student body as a whole when they learned that you all were taking legal action against the school? Um, So the media storm starts flying because now that ACLU is representing something, obviously the media is going to cover it. Mr. Reynolds is getting pretty bent out of shape because there's a lot of coverage now hitting the high school and he didn't want anyone to know. Essentially, the, the real reason it all happened is because he was trying to protect the school's image by not letting them know that there was a pregnancy problem in Hazelwood East because we didn't, girls didn't have sex. Hate to break it to you, it's been happening long before he ever got there. But all of that backfired on him on trying to protect the image. Had it just run and he not rocked the boat on it, it would have just circulated you know, locally within Hazelwood. But because of his unwillingness to do that, the St. Louis Club Democrat, St. Louis Post-Dispatch ran the articles in full. USA Today ran the articles in full, as did New York Times. So it's now blasted across the country and everybody knows that there's a pregnancy problem at Hazelwood East. The news stations are covering it and he's getting a lot of interviews from that and he was really ticked off at us. Phil Donahue, he was a big talk show host back in the 80s and he asked us to come to Chicago and be on his show. 
And we were all super excited because it's like, yay, a trip without the parentals. Um, so it was a pretty cool time. Live broadcast on it. Mom gave me consent to go. And when I get back to school, I'm personally invited to visit with Mr. Reynolds in his office. And at that point, I am told that I can either be one suspended or two expelled because I didn't personally ask his permission to be gone from class. And I said, but I had a note from my mom and my mom said it was okay. And kind of, she's the one that I have to answer to, not to you. And he said, you just caused a complete embarrassment to our, to us. And I said, no, I didn't. We didn't badmouth you. We just were asked to tell our story and that's all that we did. That sounds like a pretty big threat. How did you react? I was scared because I was a good kid. I had never done anything wrong. I was an honor student in marching band and I played soccer and you know all the, the high school stuff. I was involved on it. I wasn't a troublemaking kid. But shortly thereafter, I felt like I was because he would follow me. He was always checking in my chem class to make sure Mr. Moore knew if I was in class or not. And Mr. Moore would just say, she's here. Would you please leave her alone? At graduation, you know, you're supposed to have all the excitement and pomp and circumstance of all of that. And my graduation photo was him with the side of his head. He wouldn't even look at me, you know, and that was pretty, made me feel bad. That made me feel like I had done something wrong just by standing up for my rights. Friends in school kind of was a split. Some of them were like, why are you drawing this attention to to us? Some were like, I'm so glad you're standing up for what you believe in and for us. And, And part of that hurt too, because, you know, these were my friends and I wasn't, I wasn't intentionally trying to cause problems. Um, The other two plaintiffs in the case were Leslie Smart and Leanne West. And we just believed in what we were doing. But there were threats made to us. And originally, there had been quite a few others that were on the bandwagon for it. But as it gained momentum, everybody else backed out, except it was the three of us. What was it like taking this case to court? And what were your experiences at each of the different levels? So it's now we're gaining speed and we're going to court. And when we're in the Missouri court, I had to testify for four hours. And it was a pretty intimidating thing being a 17-year-old female dealing with you know professional men. And I have to say, it was probably the scariest circumstance about the whole thing. And we lost. And then when we went to the appellate courts, we won. And that was pretty exciting because we thought it was finished. And it was, it was a good feeling. But then the school district appealed it again. And you know what are the chances of it making its way to the U.S. Supreme Court because of the, there's about 10,000 writ of certiorities that are presented to the U.S. Supreme Court every year. And they only take about 75, 80 cases. And of course, they they chose us as one of them. And people ask me all the time, well, you know, did you ever see yourself doing this kind of thing? Did you ever expect it to go to U.S. Supreme Court? No, that wasn't the purpose behind any of it. It was just simply to have the articles published and to help our other classmates. Because, you know, high school is really a hard thing to begin with anyhow. And we just wanted kids to feel like you're not alone. That, And we realized that the articles wouldn't pertain to everybody, but if they helped one person and made a difference and made somebody else's life a little bit easier, then we did our job as a journalist. And ultimately, that's what our goal was, was just to, to help our classmates and to let them know you're not, you're not on the same path alone, that there's others out there that like you, are like you, that maybe just haven't spoken up about what their situations are. So you never intended for your case to go to the Supreme Court or even thought that it would have reached the court. But how did you think about your case as you learned it was going through this process? What was your reaction? So by the time it has rolled around to the U.S. Supreme Court, I didn't know about it. I had gone away to college. We didn't have cell phones at the time. Miss Edwards was a new attorney, so she wasn't, I guess, making a lot of money on things. And she never bothered to notify me that it went to U.S. Supreme Court, even though it carried my name. Leslie and Leanne both got to attend it. And the way that I found out about the decision of it was from a reporter from the local paper in my university town asking for comment about losing the case. And I was like, what? what? I, I didn't even have words for that person when they called. And I probably said something that probably wasn't very nice at that point. But I just wanted to talk to Leslie and figure out 
why didn't you even let me know that this was happening, let alone that we lost Miss Edwards? She didn't talk about the things that were most important. She didn't bother to mention the fact that the articles had been previously published. She didn't bother to mention that we had consent of everyone. And most importantly, she failed to mention that we had taken all the names out. And if you re actually read the decision, which came down January 13th, 1988, I'm going to put my glasses on and actually read it to you so I get it just right. The rule against prior restraint does not apply to the publication of student-operated school newspapers. In Hazelwood School District v. Kuhlmeyer, the Supreme Court upheld a public school principal's decision to remove certain controversial material from the school newspaper. The principal based his decision on fears that the articles on teen pregnancy and divorce would allow students to identify classmates who encountered such difficulties. And right there, that should have all not ever been included because if she would have done her job and talked about the important things, that part wouldn't even be in there. Justice Byron R. White ruled that educators did not offend the First Amendment by exercising editorial control so long as their actions are reasonably related to legitimate pedagogical, which is the teacher's and educator's concerns. In essence, it said that the rights of public school students are not necessarily the same as those of adults in other settings. And a different test applies to censorship by school officials of student expression in a school-sponsored activity such as a student newspaper that was not a public forum for student expression. So, in my mind, I think that because of how she handled things, she blew it for us. And ultimately, she has altered the course of history because now we've students at high school and collegiate level have lost their rights because of the case. And that's not the intent at all, is that we just wanted to help. We wanted to be able to spread the word. And now that makes it a lot harder. As you alluded to, the decision seems like it has a ton of ramifications for student journalism across the country. What are some of the effects that you've noticed in this area over time? What has come from that now is New Voices USA. And a lot of people are just like, well, I don't know what it means, but it's essentially the movement across the country at state level to pass laws to restore rights to student journalists. And I have the opportunity, I should say prior to COVID, that I would travel to different states and speak, give my testimony about what my experiences are. And then also be fortunate enough to listen to testimonies of what's affecting people right now. And it's it's a Me Too movement across the country for censorship. Kids are self-censoring because they're afraid of what the repercussions will be. Advisors are being threatened to lose their jobs and their pensions if they're helping the kids to stand up for themselves. And it's, it's that's not right. It's not what our First Amendment rights are supposed to be. Kids shouldn't go to school and feel that they are threatened by any means. The last case addressed by the court came nearly 20 years later in 2007 in a case called Morse v. Frederick. In Morse, a high school student named Joseph Frederick attended an off-campus school-sponsored event to watch the Winter Olympics torch relay. While at the event, Frederick and a few other students unraveled a 14-foot banner with the text, Long Hits for Jesus, inscribed in duct tape. The principal demanded that the students drop the banner, but Joe refused. He was quickly suspended. The Ninth Circuit eventually ruled in favor of Joe, but the Supreme Court took the case in reverse. In an incredibly fractured case, with five different opinions, the court created another exception to the Tinker Test and held that schools can prohibit speech that can reasonably be seen as encouraging illegal drug use without violating the First Amendment. Here's Douglas Mertz, Joe's lawyer, to explain the case further. Uh, My name is Douglas Mertz. I'm an attorney in Juneau, Alaska, and uh, I was Joseph Frederick's attorney right from the very first controversy before the uh, city school board all the way to the Supreme Court and back down again. Can you give us some background information and facts about the case? Who is Joseph Frederick and what happened on January 24th, 2002 that led to his suspension? 
Joe was at that time a senior at the, the Juno Douglas High School, and he was increasingly dissatisfied with the attitude of the school principal and assistant principal who would regularly abuse him and other students for doing things that he considered perfectly normal, like, for instance, threatening to suspend him for uh, reading a book in the comments area during a period when he had no class, or threatening to suspend him for failing to stand for the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, which every school administrator should know that no matter what you think of it, students have the right not to participate in the pledge. So he decided he was going to test whether, in fact, the Bill of Rights still existed in the schools. He talked to his government teacher. They came up with an idea for a test. He got together a, a long piece of butcher paper and duct tape and wrote on hits for Jesus on it. And then there was a, a relay, a running relay event to celebrate the opening of the uh, Olympics that year. And it went right in front of the high school. Students were released to go and watch it and cheer. And Joe came with this banner. And as the crowd of runners went by, he unfurled it. Well, he was off of school grounds on the other side of the street. The principal who was on the school grounds saw it, immediately ran across the street, tore it out of his hands and said, you're suspended for five days. And Joe said, wait a minute, what about my free, free speech rights? And she said, that'll make it 10 days. And it went downhill from there. He eventually appealed his suspension to the school board, which upheld it. And at that point, uh, with the help of the American Civil Liberties Union, I filed in a lawsuit in the federal district court, basically to reverse the discipline against him. And then it went to the Court of Appeals, the Ninth Circuit, which upheld our side. And then we thought that was the end of it. And uh, the other side petitioned for cert in the Supreme Court. And to our surprise, the court granted cert. We think because some members of the court were concerned about the general issue of drugs in schools. And the school district had been saying all along that this was a promotion of drugs, which to Joe's mind, it wasn't at all. In fact, he was surprised that anybody took it that way. But that may be why the court accepted the case. And there we were in the Supreme Court. Do you recall talking to Joe about his reaction to the suspension in the first place? Did he ever explain the rationale behind bong hits for Jesus in particular? And was he surprised that he was suspended for the banner? Yeah, Joe actually came up with that slogan, and it was a slogan that he had seen on a snowboard somewhere. And it had, according to Joe, no meaning whatsoever. It was edgy, and I'm sure he hoped it would offend the principal and get a rise out of her. But it, he says, and I believe him, that in no way did it have anything to do with promoting drugs. And no, he was not surprised that the principal came down on him. It was consistent with what he had experienced from her. And what were the proceedings like at the outset of the suspension? Like when Joe appealed his sentence within the school system, was it a quick process or pretty drawn out? It was fairly quick. First, we had a conference with the superintendent of schools who wasn't very sympathetic. Then we went before the school board. And it was kind of a mess because the president of the insurance company that insured 
the school against this sort of thing, was a member of the school board. Anyway, we had what I think was a fair hearing there, but they upheld the discipline. Meantime, it got a lot of publicity in the newspapers, and the reaction was very strongly on Joe's side. You know, people are very attuned to civil liberties in Alaska, and so many people said it wasn't in the school. It was outside of it. How can they punish him for something outside of school? That was the the largest single reaction. Uh, other people said oh, it was kind of a childish thing to do, and nobody was going to disagree with that. But... I think people generally recognize that one has rights even to do childish things under certain circumstances. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was going to be one of my follow-up questions, actually. So you're saying that there was a strong support from the community for Joe and his cause? Pretty much. I mean, the big opposition, frankly, was from some members of the school board and the principal, not the faculty, who were generally on his side. And I think that was basically it. Interesting fact was, it's a small town, and Joe's dad was the risk manager for the insurance company. And his boss, the uh, president of the insurance company, told him, hey, just get Joe to drop this case, will you? He's graduating. Let's get rid of it. And Joe's dad said, no, it's Joe's decision. You can't do it. And he told Joe that. And Joe said, Dad, if you really want me to, I'll drop it. But they decided not to. And then the dad was disciplined and then fired. So we brought a second suit, a civil rights suit in, in state court on behalf of the dad at a jury trial. And we won. This was all while the Joe's own case was proceeding in the federal courts. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had never heard of that before, but that's a pretty fascinating side story. Two for one, I guess, huh? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, an exciting few years for me. <laughs> oh, no doubt. I imagine. So Joe expected to get suspended and he expected that the principal would come down on him. But how far did you imagine this case going? That once you were at the district court level, that the school would drop it? And surely you'd mentioned that you didn't expect them to apply for cert once the Ninth Circuit ruled against them. I'm an eternal optimist. And I thought as soon as we filed the suit, they would say, oh, heck, he's, let's just drop it. Move on. And I believe by that time, the principal had been uh, moved to a different job in the school district. So the path was clear to do that. But no, they didn't do it. They kept pressing. And um, at every stage, they kept some people making decisions said, no, it's a matter of principle for us. We've got to control what students do. And so it went up and up. And so when you got to the Ninth Circuit, how did you start to conceptualize this case? And how did you frame the argument? There were three other Supreme Court cases on student speech rights at the time, and, and surely many more on the Ninth Circuit. Where did you begin to separate yourself and the claims that you were making? Well, I think we started with the Tinker case, Tinker against Des Moines Independent School District, um, which said and still says, in my opinion, that schools cannot discipline or prohibit student activity that does not have a direct and substantial effect on the educational process, subject to certain fairly narrow exceptions. And that had been the touchstone for our argument all along, including in the Ninth Circuit. 
And I was very happy to say the Ninth Circuit agreed with us completely that it didn't come with any in any exceptions and Tinker prevailed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the case seems pretty distinct from Kohlmeyer and Fraser. It's understandable that Tinker would be the main thrust of your argument. The other two cases, the Kohlmeyer and Fraser, had to do with in-school activity that was, for one reason or another, found to be offensive by the school officials. Here we were out of school, not in any classrooms. Students were released, didn't have to attend the parade. And there was never any discernible effect on the educational process. That leads me perfectly into my next question. In your brief to the Ninth Circuit, you touch on what is seemingly a key component to the upcoming Mahanoy case, and that's off-campus speech rights. And in this case, Joe wasn't in class or even on school grounds, and you argue that there's a distinction that has a substantial effect on his speech rights. Can you touch on that a little bit? Joe and his government teacher constructed this test very carefully to make sure that he would not be considered in school. He didn't go to school that morning. He did not step on school property that morning. He stayed across the street. He thought that was sufficient. Unfortunately, at every stage of the proceeding, the other side said it was a school outing and you're expected to be under the control of school officials while you're on a school outing. And the fact that he hadn't shown up in school today, hadn't himself been released from class, that didn't seem to cut any difference. And, uh, and I can't say that that is an insubstantial position. I think Joe might have been a little too cute in trying to separate himself from the school. But there's also no doubt at the same time that he was not in a classroom, that there was no instruction going on, and that his actions did not in any way disrupt the school educational process. It was simply something that really bugged the principal. And even in the context of Tinker, in these other cases that talk about the metaphorical schoolhouse gate, you're far and away from any part of the school. It's interesting that the idea of a school event or a school-affiliated thing can extend the reach of the school's authority. Exactly. And that, it seems to me, is the real danger that we're facing in the current U.S. Supreme Court case, the ML against the Mahoney School District, because there they're dealing with new technology where something that happens in a social media completely disconnected from the brick-and-mortar school can almost instantly be accessed by people in the school. And maybe it affects what they're doing in school. So it may be that as new technology is considered by the court, that they will expand the notion of what is school and where is it, and hence what actions out there are subject to school discipline. Yeah, it's like a whole new realm of activity and an expansion of school rights. With an upwards of 50 million students in the public school system on a daily basis, it's kind of concerning to see the overreach potential that schools can have. So we'll just have to find out exactly what the court does in this upcoming case. It also raises the danger that viewpoint censorship which is something that previously we had generally figured the members of the court and the bar in general uh, agreed was not proper in the free speech arena, with a few exceptions, that viewpoint censorship 
was, in effect, what the principal tried to do in our case and what the school officials have been trying to do in, in the Mahoney case. They disagreed with what those two students said, rightly or wrongly, and they were willing to punish the student for expressing those views. Now, in both cases, they weren't explicitly tied to a political or social commentary, certainly not in in the current case. And we made the point that at that time, the legality of marijuana was very much up in the air politically in Alaska, but Joe's banner may have been a little too subtle for his own good because it didn't say, I uphold marijuana laws or something like that. It simply was a nonsensical statement. Yeah, and that seems right there with the argument of Justice Breyer, who said that had the banner said something like legalized bong hits instead of bong hits for Jesus, or something that the justices maybe could wrap their head around instead, this case could have taken a different position. Or maybe it's just like what Justice Thomas said in his concurrence, that we're living in a world now where students have free speech rights unless they don't, and the ability of schools to use viewpoint discrimination can have a big impact on what ends up being said. Going back into your experiences coming into the Ninth Circuit and then the Supreme Court, what did you think of the case's chances? Did you feel confident about the state of the law, your arguments, and the facts of the case, or did you have some worries? Well, I have to say the the district court judge shut us right down, and a very conservative judge, so we were prepared for that. And that certainly prevents one from being overconfident. But the Ninth Circuit oral argument felt very favorable to us, and the decision as it came out was even more favorable to us. So at that point, we thought, this is unassailable, Uh, which is why we were all the more surprised when uh, the Supreme Court granted cert. And what was your and Joe's reaction to learning that the Supreme Court had accepted cert on the case? Was he surprised? At this point, the case has been going on for nearly five years. How integrated was it with your life and his? Well, for Joe, by that time, he and his dad were living in China. They were teaching English in a school in China, and he was kind of removed from things, but not particularly surprised. It it continued to dominate my life because uh, both in the Ninth Circuit and certainly in the Supreme Court, once you've got a a case coming up, it's everything. Everything else has to be pushed aside, and you have to concentrate on that. Yeah, that makes sense. How do you go about preparing for a Supreme Court argument? Was there a lot of research-based or advice-based? Did you have people that you could reach out and talk to about it? We did arrange with the help of the ACLU, which was instrumental in in backing us up, to do two moot court arguments, invaluable. I think you cannot go to the Supreme Court without doing at least one and hopefully more Supreme Court arguments. And they also were very active in securing amicus help. I don't remember how many amicus briefs we had, well over a dozen. The other side had quite a few also. And I think that helped as well to frame the issues in a multitude of different ways so that it certainly would not be easy for the court to deal with. And that showed in the fact that you had five different opinions, five or six by nine justices, and no majority opinion. Exactly. And speaking of that, the opinion that got handed down was just so fractured. So many different concurrences and dissents. What was your reaction to it all? 
the range of opinions in the individual justices' opinions was so great. It it was, although difficult to get through it all and kind of parse out who was here and who was there. In fact, it was relatively easy for us to find some comfort in our final analysis of who thought what. And my own analysis was that a majority of the court was solidly behind maintaining the tinker rule, free speech absent substantial disruption of the educational process, with only a few exceptions, including one new exception for speech that could reasonably be taken as as pro-drug speech. So there were so many opinions in the court and no real majority opinion. It didn't give very good guidance to the lower courts. And you will find that uh, lower courts, particularly the courts of appeal, were all over the place in trying to apply this decision. And uh, I'm, I'm still not sure that too many judicial figures have a firm grasp on it. Just rereading it, it's it's difficult to fully understand the implications that this case has on any upcoming cases and how it changed the landscape of student speech rights generally. You know, you have Roberts that says that school is a special area and that we want to prevent illicit drug discussion and and Kennedy and Alito that say that this is sort of the outer bounds of the First Amendment. You have Thomas who says that Tinker itself should just be overturned and removed. And then the dissent talks about the political aspects of the speech and how harmless Joe's speech actually was. It's just so jumbled. Where does this leave student speech rights going forward in your eyes? What does this landscape look like? I think you can see it in the briefing in the Mahoney VL case, namely that relatively little attention is given to Morsby Frederick and more of it on Tinker and the other big exception cases than anything else. And that's probably the way it should be. I will say Mary Beth Tinker came to the oral argument in our case as our guest, and she was a great help in sorting it all out, figuring out what it meant. And then she later came to Alaska and she and I went up to Anchorage, our largest city, and spoke to a convocation of students and administrators there on what all of these cases should mean to schools in the future. I want to thank all of our guests for their insightful words. And with that, we'll conclude episode one of our two-part season finale on student speech. Our upcoming episode, debuting shortly, dives directly into the Mahoney case and discusses ways in which the justices may evaluate the matter. Join us as we continue trying to unravel the student speech doctrine one case at a time. But in the meantime, this has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiElRev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or really any place where you get your podcasts. We look forward to seeing you next time, and thanks for listening once again.